Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused folks from Blizzard Watch, and I've got my stupendous co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? Um, I have no idea. I believe that is a fair response in the current state of the world. Um, before we get started, we are going to be answering some questions uh, this week instead of going through with our, our recent series, uh, just because people have been asking us a bunch of questions, and I'd like to take some time and actually catch up. Um, as with everything else, there's been a, a sort of a recent influx of just vitriol and toxic behavior being leveraged at developers, but not only developers, but the people who make the story. And we talked about this a little bit with Anne last week on episode 200, but I feel like it bears repeating. And I don't think anybody that listens to us is, is doing this, but I feel like it's worth saying. It's not any one person who is making the decisions in the game, and it is absolutely your right not to like those decisions, but please don't take them out on the people that are working on this. It is not constructive it is not good it is not healthy and that just makes people not want to do things like work on the games we love um you can have an opinion yep. that says i don't like this just don't be a jerk about it and if say just just as a random example it's not based on anything in real life if somebody who works on a video game is posting a tweet about a completely different video game that they're playing and has nothing to do with them and that they don't work on um don't post 12 reply tweets excoriating them and calling them like the worst thing in the universe and otherwise blaming them for every bad thing that's ever happened in world of warcraft just 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 as a thing just maybe maybe don't do that because that that's 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 not good behavior that's that's harassment it is definitely in the realm of harassment uh, and, and, and it's also quite frankly it's disturbing like if i tweeted you know Hey, uh, I was on IGN and I couldn't find this thing. Does anyone else know where to find this thing on IGN? And you tweeted a like a thirty thing about how I've ruined Blizzard Watch. I I would be considering trying to get a restraining order on you because that's that's a lot more fixation on me than I deserve. I'm quite frankly not that important. Uh, developers, no developer has ever been solely responsible for anything that has ever happened in any video game with the possible exception of stuff made for the Atari 2600 and or, maybe Pong or, or, or Cave Story or things that only had one person. But even that, yeah. it's, it's still not right. Yeah. You can leverage you can leverage your, your discontentment constructively and positively. You don't have to be. Well, I'll say it because we get one per show. You Don't be a dick about it. Just don't. It's not worth it. And, you know, if you if you absolutely cannot express yourself in a way that's like helpful in any way, you don't have to to respond at all like you don't have to tell them anything you can go outside and find like a like a ball and like throw it up against a wall a lot or get a punching bag or a baseball bat and hit the ball or there's lots of things you can do with that anger that you have that is something humans have that is more constructive and more importantly not as terrifying as some of the stuff i'm seeing like come on this is these are video games their games we play them and now the reason not worth one person being made to feel afraid or upset or any of it it just it is not no especially no. not with what's been going on lately and the reason i'm bringing this up again is because when we're going to be answering some questions this episode that are definitely asking about some very polarizing decisions that have been made for the story in world of warcraft uh and i just wanted to remind everybody that Again, even if you don't 
uh, agree with it, you can still be civil. Um, that said, if you do have questions for us here on Lore Watch, or if you have it for Blizzard Watch Podcast, or now our new Tavern Watch Podcast, you can be sure to send those in to podcast at blizzardwatch.com, or reach out to us on our Discord server. We have one set aside for our Patreon subscribers as a way of saying thank you. We do look there first. Um, and if you can't support us on Patreon and you don't like email, but you still want to do the Discord thing, we do have one set aside for Q and Podcast questions. Uh, and we have had several folks already start to send us stuff for Tavern Watch. So thank you very much. We are looking at those and we'll be addressing or answering those questions in upcoming episodes. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to get into our first question here. It is a bit of a long one and it is from a Long-time listener, first-time uh, questioner. Uh, so, is it canon that Queen Azara was using some form of magical mind control to command the love of the ancient Keldore Empire? I've heard it mentioned that she was so powerful that she could accomplish this, but I don't really think it's necessary for the story. I think it would perfectly it would work perfectly well for the Hoi Polai of the Keldore Empire to love and trust their queen just by virtue of the fact that she is their leader of their Azeroth-spanning empire. Citizens of a powerful country often feel affirmed through the actions of their state, even if they are alienated from control over those actions. In the eyes of the common people, the queen becomes the face of the empire, thus they associate its character and good fortune with her persona and personal power, respectively. Uh, even if the aristotic, er, aristocratic highborn were disliked, they may view the queen as separate and apart from them. In pre-revolutionary Russia, there was a strong sentiment that the Tsar was on the side of the people against the hated nobles. This gave rise to the popular saying, when lamenting the misdeeds of the Tsarist nobility, if only the Tsar knew. The sentiment was only partially dispelled after, uh, well, the events of the 1905, 1905 Russian Revolution, which served as a dress rehearsal for the Bolshevik Revolution, Revolution 12 years later. I think this could explain why Prince Ferrandis' subjects hated him so greatly, even though it was Azara who was directly responsible for their deaths. They blamed him for taking actions that led to the unleashing of her wrath, which they see as innately justified by virtue of her providence as queen. Is it feasible? or is there something in the lore that explicitly says Azara made everybody love her using magic? Thank you for any response. Love the podcast. And this is from Salhadin, a Warcraft feral druid from Terelian. So she was an incredibly, incredibly powerful magic user. She still is. Might actually be the strongest one currently in a living state on Azeroth. Um, but I don't know if anything explicitly says that she used magic to, to really beguile the subjects. No, um... It is possible that she did so. She is powerful enough that she could have done so. But nowhere in the books and nowhere in like any of the chronicles or anything in the game has it ever been explicitly said that Ashara was using uh, magic to manipulate her followers. She didn't have to. Uh, she was just that incomparable. Ashara was born with golden eyes, uh, which is a rare thing among the Night Elves, and it usually indicates a great destiny. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost, of, like a, it's almost like by itself something that would cause them to revere her, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like the first, the first thing about her is she was born with golden eyes. She was apparently incomparably beautiful from like very, very early age. Uh, it, it's her power is seen more in the fact that she could stand there in front of Manoroth and Manoroth couldn't attack her. Like he, he, he realized this was somebody that killed. It would take a kill Jaden or perhaps even a Sargeras to stop. And like even he, then, he it wasn't certain, right? Well, Sargeras probably could do it. I mean, come on, Sargeras. Hmm. But 
even if he hadn't, he would never have thought, well, Sargeras might not even be able to do this. But he would absolutely did think that about Kil'jaeden, that even Kil'jaeden or Archimond might not be able to stop her. That's where you get, you know, the, the estimation for her power is nothing to do with her beguiling the Night Elves. She beguiled the Night Elves with sheer charisma. Now, did she use magic to to become more charismatic? Probably in that she would, you know, it, it would be part of her daily ritual. You know what I mean? Like, she would use magic to shorten the process of making herself look her best in much the same way that anybody who is going to be out there using their appearance to manipulate others is going to take a lot of time on their appearance. It's, it's a tool. But there's nothing in the, the, the game, there's nothing in any of the lore sources for the game that says specifically that she uses magic to control people's minds. She did not have to. She no. simply was as Shara. And that was enough. It, it, like when she rose to power, she rose to power. The city that sh- that she is, was then called after her, Azinashari, was originally named Alundris. Mm-hmm. The people named the city. They changed the name from after their god to Ashara. That's how much they loved her. She was effectively replacing Elune in her people's hearts. By the time of the of the War of the Ancients, she had effectively made a loon something people still worshipped, but were like, eh, you know, I, I don't really bother a, anymore. A loon's not here, Azjara is. Yeah, exactly. There's there's a certain level of also like the possibility that some of her magic is almost like subconscious in use too, and there's a possibility that some of that might have uh, been there as well. We don't know because we weren't obviously there, even with the instances that have brought us back to the time where she was not nagified yet. Um, when we did the Caverns of Time, we did the, the, the whole All of Eternity stuff. There is this this sort of feeling or implication that she just exudes sort of magic, which I think is where people kind of get this idea that she possibly used magic to manipulate people. But I think Matt's on the right of it. If it was any magic that was being used, I don't think it was consciously because I don't think she needed to. But anything that she did for preparations, anything she did to... uh, make herself even if it's like cantrips like making herself sparkle in the in the the sunlight a very specific way or drawing attention to herself in a very specific manner or making sure her hair is absolutely perfect like all of that stuff is valid and all that stuff is possibly something that she would do and it is also possible that maybe subconsciously she just had an aura around her that sort of just exuded not just le- that level of command, uh, but also power. Like you go back to the whole Manoroth couldn't attack her, possibly not even kill Jaden or Archimond. That could be just by the sheer stature of her presence or the fact that um, this is going to sound really weird, but I almost equate it to like if we were going to go the anime route, like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, when we talk about the power of people's stands, and I, I know that there's some people probably rolling their eyes, but it's some people that are probably like, yep, that makes sense. It's this idea that there's sort of like this latent power that sort of surrounds somebody that is kind of comes across in their bearing. And I think that is her. Like, she knows how powerful she is. She knows the depths of her her power. Like, even if we go back to, I think it was the Harbingers, right? That was the name of the shorts uh, for Legion. Yeah. Um, when you go through her story and it's the fall of, of her civilization when everything starts happening, when the world... Oh, that's, that's Harbingers, but it's not for Legions, for BFA. For BFA, was it? Was it the one that yeah. for Ajar? Was that it? But it, I thought was, it was it for was Legion. BFA. Yeah. Nope. Okay, so it was, it was for... Jaina, then Sylvanas, then Ashara. You're Got right, them. yes. Okay. But you see her 
with all of this power and she's holding back essentially a world's worth of catastrophe for a very commendable amount of time. And it wasn't until she like expended everything she had that she made that deal. And it wasn't a deal that she was entering into thinking, yeah, I'm going to be in service for the rest of my life. Uh, no, it was, this gives me more power to save my people. This gives me more power than I had before. And I can keep going. And even with her representations in the game over the years, we've seen her pop up in Visions. We've seen her pop up with a lot of the Naga questing uh, throughout Azeroth, throughout all of the years that the game has been around, there's always this sort of presence to her. And it's always sort of like this, I don't want to say like a dread, but it's like just this awe-inspiring command presence. And whether that's magic or just her, it could be both. It could be just her, it could be just magic. But yeah, she didn't need to, to sit there and manipulate memory. She didn't need to sit there and, you know, dominate somebody's mind. They wanted to serve her willingly. And I think part of what you're saying here uh, is correct. I think that it is sort of like this is the ultimate expression of us as a people. She is our leader and she has the golden eyes. And that means she has a great prophecy. She's going to do well by us. Look at how much we prosper under her. And they sort of have that sort of projection where their prosperity is her prosperity and vice versa. And it isn't until... You know, the world is sundered and everything splits apart and they start realizing, oh, she started making deals with demons. She started making uh, deals with old gods and all this other and, and like everything is horrible and things are blowing up that really anybody second guess that really. I mean, another way to put this is real simple. Lord Ravencrest, whilst leading the, the revolution to attempt to save his people from the demons and realizing that the highborn were in it with the demons still thought Ashara was on their side. Mm -hmm. He still wanted to save her. He had to be convinced otherwise. There, the I can't remember his name, but you fight him in the Well of Eternity, the uh, Varathan, Captain Varathan, I believe. Yeah. He literally had no visible emotion. He showed no emotion at anything. And yet he was so wildly in love with Ashara that she could order him to do anything, and he would do it. And she didn't need to manipulate him. I mean, except by just being her. It was sheerly... Like, I think that Ashara would have thought that using magic to directly affect people's minds was crass. Yeah, it was It was not elegant at all. Not even and close. Not, not something she would have felt she needed to do. Uh, when, you when you go to Well of Eternity, when you attempt to attack Ashara, she never directly fights you. No. She just sits behind her shields and then just leaves... You know, she doesn't take a, a shot, doesn't... You're no nothing to her. She, yeah. So, I don't, I just... it is it within her capacity to, to have done it? Yes, she could do it. She's quite capable. Um, 10,000 years ago, she was one of the strongest magic users ever to exist. And that, that was 10,000 years ago. Um, she's had time to get better. Uh, the, let Even me put it to you this way. Jaina Proudmore required you to use Azerite from the heart of Azeroth to connect a portal out of, you know, I can't remember the name of Nazatar. Yeah. Nazatar. Yeah. Yeah. In order to make a portal out of Nazatar, she needed a ley line nexus and the power of the, of the heart of Azeroth to get around the interdiction that Ashara had put down. And keep in mind, Ashara knew that she was doing it. Ashara let her do it. Yep. Because she wanted that group of adventurers, including the, the person with the Heart of Azeroth, which, of course, is everybody in the raid, but, you know, canonically only one person has. Um, 
she wanted that brought to her. She wanted it there so she could use it. And she did use it. And she did free Nazoth. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at that encounter, too, she really re- barely fights you. Because at the first part of that encounter is you fighting her minions and fighting against what she's trying to do with the locks. Like, she, and even when she is active, it's she's barely paying you any attention. And it's all about her minions coming to the fight for her. She's re- barely even paying attention to you. She's busy trying to undo the lock. Again, even in that moment, even with you wailing on her with axes and throwing spells at her, she doesn't care. Not not in the way that you would expect. She doesn't fight back with the abandon or, or uh, focus that most of the other bosses that, that we've encountered do. Gahoon paid more attention to us than she did. And I think that's lost on a lot of a lot of times because it's like, oh yeah, we beat her, and then she got taken away into Nazas, you know, Black Empire. Little, he's like, no, we. She expended her power and our power to release him. She was just tired from doing what she had to do. It wasn't us. She did that. She made that choice and put herself in that position. And I think that's something that I, people should remember about her. And even now, like after we freed her. She's still there. She's still out there. And the entire time, and, I, and I've been bringing this up for forever, while we're dealing with everything that's happening in the Shadowlands, there is literally nobody watching her. Because all eyes are on the Jailer. And yes, that's important, but she is one of the most dangerous villains we've ever faced because she's smart and powerful, and now she doesn't have any checks and balances. And the only thing that was sort of keeping her in remote check which is Nazoth is either dormant or something else has happened to him but he's sort of out of the equation for right now so is she going to pop back up is she going to be probably more powerful than she was before yeah I'd put money on it uh, is she going to have still a, a cavalcade of followers yes uh, it's just how good she is at that too because even in their current state they still follow her they could have rebelled all those Naga could have rebelled or tried to do something else they didn't all the ones that she sent to go work elsewhere throughout the rest of Azeroth or even in Outlands, they could have turned their backs on her. They didn't. They were operating under orders. This is it, it, when you talk with uh, Lady Vash in Shadowlands, you get a feeling of that where it's like, yeah, this was all this is all part of the plan. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she didn't need ma- ultimately she didn't need magic. But I think you're right in a lot of the, the things you say here. I think that is partially why people the, the ghosts hated Prince Ferrandis so much. Um, I think there's a lot of that to it. And again, I don't think she needed any magic. All right. I think we're going to move on to the next one. Unless you have anything else you want to say about Queen Ezjara? No, I think that you're dead on about the idea that the people were loyal to her personally. I I definitely think that she was idealized. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it wasn't even necessarily Ashara herself. It was their platonic conception of Ashara. It was what they thought she was like. It was what they imagined this perfect person to be. And, you know, everyone's told that she's perfect. She's glorious. She's wonderful. But you don't see her. The average the average Calderai never saw her. She's over in Zinashari, surrounded by the Highborn. Mm-hmm. If she saw her at all, you'd like maybe once every few years she'd come out for some event. She 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 was a, an idea to them. Or and an as ideal. A result, yeah. But, but an ideal that is held up not through their own actions. Like, you know, she didn't have to do anything. Like, the entire society was built around venerating and revering her. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think you've got a, I think you've got an interesting point about this, and I, I don't disagree with it. All right. Our next question comes from Belloc of Dragonflight. 
Uh, he is a, or they are a frequent flyer here and happy to have more questions from him. This is a three-parter. Dear Watchers, after the recent raid cutscenes were released, I've been left with several questions that I was hoping you could answer. Spoilers ahead. Twice now, the Jailer has reached into a small portal and pulled out a blue crystal. One was used to make a Mornblade, the other was stuffed into Sylvanas. Are they souls? Part 2. If they are souls, whose got forged into Anduin's sword? And 3. If Sylvanas did just get her soul back, what does that mean? Is she alive, undead, or something else? Oh, I apologize, this is a four-parter. And finally... The Jailer revealed his grand plan at the end of the raid, and Sylvanas was shocked enough to turn on him. What does she think his plan was all this time that she was serving or helping him? So I guess we can start with the first one. Matt, what do you think? Is what he's pulling out of there like crystallized condensed souls? Well, if you do the Kyrian thing, at one point, uh, you you and Uther go to the Jailer's repository of souls. Yeah, yep. he's got a whole place where he's keeping souls. And the souls have fancy titles rather than, like, they don't just say, this is Jim's soul. They have, like, you know, soul of the tortured one or something. So, yeah, uh, they're souls. That is that is what they are. Yeah, and they are very, um, you are right, they're very specific souls. I actually took a whole bunch of screenshots when I was in there the last time. Uh, let's see here. What do I have? Uh, there was the Holy Lightbringer, which I believe that was Uther at that point. Uh, there was the Champion of Peace. There was the Archmage's Mentor. Uh, There was the Golden King, the Blood Queen, uh, the Grand Magister, the Guardian of Naxxramas, and the Betrayed Father. So I'm pretty confident you can go through uh, sort of the WoW history books and kind of pick out who some of those are. And there's definitely some very heavy implications there. But yeah, we know their souls. Uh, we know that they are from his private stock and collection inside of Torghast, uh, because, like Matt said, we stage a heist. There's a there. It was a really cool, uh, interesting quest that that got my head spinning of what else he has access to. But now the part two is if they are souls, which we can assume they are, who's got forged into Anduin's sword? Mine. Sorry, <laughs> Matt. I wasn't the, using it. Matt the Mornblade Rossi. All right, that's going to be a no, thing now. No, no, I honestly. We don't know. That the, the quick and easy, simple, true answer is we don't know. We can speculate. The way I see it, there's a few candidates. Mm-hmm. Uh, an easy candidate is, is Arthas. Yeah. Because we know that, A, he wanted something like what Arthas was, and he's also angry at Arthas for having failed him. We know and, that Ner'zhul was split off from the Lich King's soul. Yeah, because we see Ner'zhul. We fight Ner'zhul. Uh, we fight the remnants yeah. of him. Uh, and also, we know that Arthas was tossed bodily, you know, or not bodily, because it was his spirit, but, you know, he was tossed into the maw by uh, Uther and Davos. Um, and we know that, you know, she was working with the Jailer, so it's possible that, you know, she threw him in there on the Jailer's behalf after she got mad at the Archon for not taking the whole threat of the maw seriously. Apparently, she decided, I'm just going to go work for the maw then, which is a little weird, but, you know, whatever. Uh, it's So, and Arthas, I think, is a candidate. Um some people are saying his dad, and I don't think that's that's the case. It doesn't feel to me like Varian would be a good choice. No. If you wanted to corrupt Anduin, Varian would fight really hard to not do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think Arthas is a good is a good possibility. Um, I actually, I mean, Benedictus maybe. I mean, I can't really think of anybody else. I mean, who who would you think it might be? I mean, I, and this is something I've been talking about with a couple of our, our listeners on Discord and uh, Twitter a little bit. I keep leaning towards 
Arthas as well. If for no other reason, we haven't seen anything with Arthas outside of Uther's memory. And when we... I mean, he could be the Golden King, but I don't think that's him. Because he was never actually king. Uh, even as a Lich King, he wasn't actually a king. He was never crowned or coronated. And it seems to make the most sense... There's a lot of parallels between Anduin and Arthas that people like to point out. And what better way to exert control over somebody than using something that seems to be a little more attuned to them? Uh, it also would make sense in regards of like who Anduin is. What other way would make sense of something you've already dominated, something you've had for a little bit, something you've already shredded, but then resonates with his sense of duty, uh, his sense of his wanting to protect his people, uh, the sense of being a young king, uh, before his time or having to make difficult decisions, because we know that that's something Anduin struggles with. And so did Arthas. That is sort of the whole crux of Arthas's uh, kind of descent into becoming the Lich King, right? It's making these hard decisions that he felt he had no choice but to make. And I think it's a really good candidate. I don't know anybody else that would really make sense. I would have said possibly Ner'zhul, but we fight Ner'zhul. We fight the remnants of him, whatever's left. We know that it's been split up and pulled apart. Uh, and it's in Torghast. It's in the Sanctum of Domination. We see nothing of Arthas there, literally nothing. And one would also think that if if given the opportunity, if nothing else in the Sanctum of Domination, which Silvana seems to have pretty good run of, run of the place, why wouldn't she want to take a crack at Arthas' soul? Yet you don't see that. And it's not something she's doing, talks about doing, or anything else. The only thing that I could see preventing her from trying to, like, exact some form of revenge or uh, inflict some form of pain to say, this is what you made me feel, now it's my turn to make you feel it, would be if it wasn't accessible to her. It wasn't something that she was allowed to see. And it also seems like Arthas would probably be one of those souls that he would keep in his private reserves. Because again, you have uh, Arthas's father, and why can't I think of his name now? Tyrannus Manithil. Thank you. Uh, who I think is one of those souls. You have the Blood Queen Lanithil, which was one of the Lich King's servants. You have all these things that seem to fit right into that. These are prized possessions. think that would be a good guess. Um, the third question part was, did Sylvanas get her soul back, and what does that mean, Matt? Well, if she got her soul back, she is not alive. She's obviously still undead when you see her. Her physical form hasn't changed at all. Uh, I think her eyes are the only thing that changes. Mm -hmm. um, so I think she's still undead. You can have an undead with a soul. Uh, the the soul thing seems to be specifically when you're killed with the uh, with a with a mourn blade, it it damages your soul. I don't even think that was her whole soul. I think it was a part of it, much in the same way that Uther had lost a part of his soul, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and part of his soul went to be part of the Kyrian. And the wound that he had on his soul was the wound created by the mourn blade. It was Frostmourne did that, and I think Frostmourne cleaved off a part of Sylvanas as well. I think that that's what it was. It was a chunk of her soul. It was a piece of her. Um, so I think she's still undead. I think she's just the part of her that was gone, the part of her that was gone all this time, the part of her that, you know, made her the full person is now back. Uh, she can probably feel more now than she could before. Like she talks about it in, if you read War Crimes, there's a part where she talks about how the phantom emotions limb. to her, like a phantom limb. Like yep. she, she doesn't, she can't make them work, but she can still feel them. And I think that that's related to this. Um, in terms of what does it mean, I think it just means that she's going to be suffering. 
Um, because before she didn't seem capable of remorse. If you if you look at things that Sylvanas has done in the past, she doesn't seem capable of remorse. She doesn't seem to regret, perhaps, but remorse didn't seem to be the case. But now she probably is. And if she is, she's about to be reliving a whole lot of decisions she made that were causing a ton of suffering and death. And from somebody who died the way she died, it's it's like, imagine you, you, you gave your life, sacrificed your life, ultimately, trying to save your people, trying to prevent a horror, and then you spend years mentally crippled and, and inflicting that horror on people only to, to, to finally be able to feel again. Um, I, I'm kind of likening it to, I have a, a condition called anhedonia, where I can't feel pleasure very effectively. Um, I'm on medication for it, and it's caused me to have some really weird moments when the medication working really well and I feel everything. I don't necessarily feel pleasure. I actually sometimes feel worse because now I can feel fully, so all the stuff that I've been not particularly noticing is now hammering on me. I have not committed mass murder. I have not committed genocide. Sylvanas has done both Mm -hmm. multiple times. Sylvanas, you know... The suffering of the people of Gilneas is directly on Sylvanas. The suffering of the people of, of Darnassus is directly on Sylvanas. You know, it's it's that's a lot. I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the character. But I don't know. Obviously, we don't know. So I'm going to say something that I think is, is, I don't know if it's going to be received well or not. I think for the first time, yes, she's undead, but I think she's finally forsaken. Because... Of the people that were raised in, in undead as as part of the scourge, and then got themselves back, they weren't exactly executed by a Mornblade. They were resurrected through necromantic means, but not by direct like being clo- cleaved by a Mornblade. No, they were killed with the uh, the curse, the plague of undeath, and then brought back. Right. She, however, was, and she was incomplete. And we know this. And I was thinking about this going back to like before the storm. Um. And it's one of my favorite books because it gives you such an insight into how the Forsaken operate. We know that sometimes their emotions can be turned up to 11, depending on how they were resurrected. We see this in Shadows Rising. But in Before the Storm, they're still a people. They still have the memories of who they were in life. And they don't seem to be given to too many extremes. In fact, uh, the Council of, of... What is it? Council of Desolation? Desolate Council. Desolate Council. Um they're not caricatures of who they were in life. And Sylvanas for the longest time really kind of was because she had, like Matt pointed out, that phantom limb of emotion. She couldn't feel things. But when you're going through that book, these forsaken are feeling things. They feel loss and regret and sorrow and love. And there's this, like, even in the moment when they're meeting with the people that actually came from Storm and their family members that actually came to see them. It talks about the joyous reunion after like, you know, this sort of like tentative, uh, like meeting of the, of the folks where that's like, there, there's wariness, this uneasiness. And then there's this extreme joy and it. They again are not caricatures of themselves. They're not just amped up to 11 in one direction. And I think that maybe I've been thinking about the Forsaken wrong up until this point. And when she got, when Sylvanas got her soul back, it made me start to think that maybe now she's actually Forsaken. She can actually feel. She can actually feel completely. She can actually understand in the same way she would if she was living, but in the same way that other Forsaken have been able to do for forever now. Uh, 
And I think that's what it is. She's still undead. She's not alive. Um, and I don't think she's something else. I think she's just finally becoming slotted into that position of, of being forsaken. Uh, part four with the jailer revealing his grand plan at the end of the raid. Uh, the question is, what did Sylvanas think his plan was all this time that she was lending him a hand? Do you have- it's not, it's not that she thought his plan was different. It's that she thought the mean, the goal was different. You, the point where she turns on him is when he says, all shall serve me. Mm-hmm. Yep. He had not indicated to her that he wanted to control everything. He told her that the cycle of life and death was broken, that it, it led to misery and, and torture, like the torture she'd been through, that there was no point to any of it, and it needed to be destroyed and remade. She says this to Anduin. She talks about it repeatedly. She's been talking about you it know? for years. She talks about how unfair it is, how pointless it is. You know, that this is, you know, you, you live your life and then you die and you end up shuffled into this afterlife. And, and it's like, for what? Why was it, you know, and so when he tells her he's going to destroy everything and remake it, she, and she thinks that'll be a better existence. It'll be more fair. We won't live and then die. We'll just exist. We'll just all be, you know, we'll all be the same. And life won't, ex- life won't be there to just be a joke where you end up, like you know, sorted into some like house after you die, and then you know? still have to serve. Yeah, that's that's what she that's what she believed the plan was, and that is the plan. He does still intend to do that. It's just that oh, he happened to reveal that when he does that, he's going to put himself on top, and everybody else gets to serve him. So instead of four groups that kind of force you to join them and force you to do what they think you should be doing, there will just be one dictator who tells everybody what to do and everyone's existence is just going to be that that's what she reacted to that's you know whether you think sylvanas is a good person or not that's totally up to you to make that kind of value decision but it is clear that sylvanas windrunner has never been somebody who likes to be told what to do yeah and we've brought this up a lot like it's that uh, that idea of servitude is really the the linchpin of it yeah and, and going back even to when she was alive Mm-hmm. Sylvanas once told Kael'thas to step. The prince. When he, yeah, the prince of Silvermoon. Her, you know, directly, her social superior, if not directly above her in, in the in line of succession. Chain, yeah. You know, theoretically, an Asterian was her commander, but this is still the guy who's going to be king comes up to you and says, you should get rid of that human. And she's like, F you. Um, I, I, did I miss a meeting where you became head of the Farstriders? No, I'm still Ranger General. Okay, then, that I'm going to do what I want to do. And if anybody has a problem and their name isn't Anisterian, uh, they can shuffle off. And if their name is Anisterian, he can accept my resignation because I will not be Ranger General if I am not Ranger General. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and she just flat out told him, no, I'm not doing anything you told me to do. I don't have to. So this is somebody who has never liked being told what to do. And... For good reason, because she usually was the smartest person involved in any decision being made around her, uh, unless Alaria was in the room, um, or their mom, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, and that's, to me, that that is a through line that works for Sylvanas. I, and in no way does this, every time I say something, it's even remotely positive about Sylvanas, people are always it's like, It's not you know, absolution. Yeah, it's not absolution. I don't think what happened to her is absolution. And I don't think turning on the jailer is absolution. It doesn't change what she did. Mm-hmm. Um, and the worst part for her is going to be knowing that she did that. 
Not that and there that shouldn't it, be other punishment levied with yeah, it, no. but I mean, she now she has to feel the weight of it. I'm going to be upfront. I still think the end of this expansion, she's going to be taking on the, the the maw. I think she's going to basically become the jailer of the damned. Yeah, we've uh, a lot of people have been saying that. Yeah, I, I really do think so. But regardless, uh, her yeah, she knew what his plan was the whole time. She just didn't know that you know he had left out that part where he remade the universe to basically everyone be his slaves forever. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the part she's like, wait, whoa, we didn't talk about. No, that's not what we said. Yeah, it, it is. That is my opinion. I agree, actually. And that's one of the things that I was going to point out is, again, you hit the nail on the head. It's that servitude. It's that idea that she was serving. Like up to this point, she yeah, she was being asked to do things. But there's a difference between commanding somebody and like the jailer going, I need this done. Can't go and do this for me. And not giving like an exact step by step. It's the difference between micromanagement and just saying, I need something. And well, Sylvanas, for her part, Sylvanas herself was a general. Yeah. She understands command. Exactly. It doesn't make the people you're commanding your slaves. Exactly. And so she's getting issued commands and tasks that align with what she's expecting. At the end of it, not having servitude. And that's one of the things that I think they really drove home in the story of the Covenants, all of them, not just, uh, you know, Bastion, not just Maldraxxus. If you are part of any of those cycles, you serve. Whether you're tending groves, whether you are tending the penitent, whether you are defending the Shadowlands from incursion and threat, or whether you are ferrying souls to Oribos for sorting, you are serving. You still have a duty. You still have a role. And in some of them, it's been very, like, that's how the Forsworn became became a thing. Because it was supposed to be blind servitude. There was supposed to be this this line in the sand that you did not cross. You just did what you were told. Uh, Maldraxxus to the same thing was like, it was survival of the fittest, the strongest led. And then the Primus was gone. And there was nobody in Central Command, so it sort of devolved. But you went there, and if you were sorted into Maldraxxus, you served in the army. like, Or you served in the spy corps, or you served in the magic corps, or whatever the case is. You had a role. And so when Sylvanas has shown that, and said, here's your afterlife, here's what waits for you after you die, you still must serve. After being yoked by the Lich King uh, for a good long length of time, like... That was not a short period of time in which the Lich King was doing his thing um, before she gets any modicum of control back. Uh, then finding out that you've been pushed or pulled or manipulated uh, to do certain things maybe that you didn't expect. And then getting to this position where you've shown that. Yeah. And then being told, yeah, by the way, everybody's going to serve me. Yeah, that's the point. And again, it doesn't absolve her of anything she's done, but that's the turning point. It has nothing to do with what she thought she was doing. She thought she was breaking everything so that people wouldn't have to serve and could make their own choices in mm-hmm. life and in death. And she was trying to free us for all that, you know, that everything she's done is awful. Mm-hmm. But she she even says, I'm you know, this will be freedom. I'm going to free everyone, everyone. You know, the reason that, you know, it's kind of like the sunk cost fallacy where you, you hear that's the, the idea over and over again. I can't stop now. I've, I've put too much into this. Uh, that's definitely part of it is that Sylvanas was definitely thinking, you know, I've already gone this far, I can't back out now. But also, like, when you see her talking to Anduin, she really means it. Mm-hmm. This is this is what's going to happen. It's going to free everybody. She says it. Anduin mocks her for it. Well, not really mock, 
he he's points like, out, he points out the, the fallacy of it. Yeah, you've got to understand that that's not that this guy can't be trusted. That this is you know BS. Um, but I do think that it took her up until that point to finally say, "Ah, oh, crap," because mm-hmm. she was holding out hope that he wasn't full of crap. She was holding out hope that he was going to break everything and, and remake the universe, and it was going to be like he said. Even though she, she, it was in the back of her head that this is, you know, watching him parrot, you know, puppet Andrew and around. She, she had it in the back of her head. Oh, this is not going well. This does not bode well for for Operation Save Everybody. But actually, hearing it from him is, it's you can keep deluding yourself, and and the guy actually says it right there in front of everybody that that's what he's going to do. Then yeah, that was the moment where she was like, ah, here we go. So yeah, I, I do I do definitely think that it's not the plan cha- that changed, and it's not the plan she wasn't aware of. It was his motivation. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that answers your question, Bellic, and we're going to move on to our next one, which comes from our good friend Godzilla, uh, because radioactive giant lizards are always our friend. Uh, question for Lorewatch. In the past, we all kind of assumed that the Night Warriors pretty much get a free pass to Ardenweld when they die, but the Lady Kalik and the Stone Rite confirmed that Night Warriors, it seems, that any Night Warrior can be sorted and out in the Shadowland. What are your thoughts on this? Did Elune just favor Theranax, or do you think it's just as simple of being a Night Warrior isn't a direct ticket to Ardenwell? I mean, it could be both of those things. Yeah, they don't necessarily have to be exclusive, right? I mean, this I mean, is- Theranax was like the first Night Warrior. He was the first time anybody did it, uh, and he did it in service of you know her in a direct service, you know, trying to defend a world from like an actual old god. So, I mean, he just might have been Theranax had earned his place in the Ardenweald. It could just be I, that simple. Maybe no Night Warrior is guaranteed there any more than they're guaranteed anywhere else. I, I don't know. So there was something that was said during the whole cinematic thing that really kind of stuck out to me. And I'm kind of curious if, if this sort of stuck out with you. It's when Elune is sort of in full possession of Tehran's body and they're talking, her and the, and the, the uh, queen are talking to each other, the Wonder Queen are talking to each other. She says to her, this one has to make the choice. So it made me start to think, maybe we've been thinking about the Night Warriors all wrong in so much as they don't get a free ticket to just Ardenweld. Maybe they get to choose. Maybe there's an element of that where they can say, I want to keep serving, so I'm going to go and you know, work in, in, you know, Ardenwell tending groves, or maybe I want to go and work in, uh, Revendreth and make people like cleanse their sins and tend to those that want to be better. Uh, or maybe I want to keep serving in the military. And maybe that's what actually like a gift to the night warriors is when they pass. It's not that it's a free ticket to Ardenwald, but it's a free ticket to choose, not necessarily be sorted because, that seems to fit with the personalities on display. Like when you're doing that whole quest and you're talking to the individual night warriors and talk to them after you're done with uh, the whole Tehran thing. And you get the idea that these were conscious choices that they made. And I also found it very telling that none of them were in Bastion because you would think that if it was an automated sorting thing or something where uh, the, the Arbiter was doing the sorting for it, that at least one would wind up in Bastion, but then they would be devoid of all their memory. And what good would they be at that point, right? So I'm thinking maybe they got to choose where they went and they got to choose what their service was in the afterlife. What do you think of that? Or do you I think mean, I'm it's completely idea. I don't. I don't think the choice that she was talking about was anything like that. I think she was talking about the choice between vengeance and, sure, you know, 
I don't know if the word protection would be the right word. Renewal. Like, do you do you know do I help heal the wounds or do I destroy? Um, and the thing is, is that Elune does not present this as a moral like the choice with like a one moral outcome and one immoral outcome. It's just a choice. Taranda can choose to seek out her revenge, or she can choose to help the people of Ardenweald. It's a decision that she can make. Um, so I think that's what the choice that she was talking about was. But it is an interesting thing to think about the possibility that the Elune is short-circuiting the whole Arbiter process. Um, now that we've learned that the Arbiter was basically just a chunk of Zoval the whole time, this does imply that Zoval was the one doing this before. Mm-hmm. You know, Zoval used to be the guy sorting everybody. And, you know, I've said before, and I'm sure I'll say again, that the Maw, I definitely feel like at one point there wasn't, there was a Shadowland. There was one place that had at least all the ones we've seen so far. There was one place that had Ardenweald in it. It had Bastion in it. It had Revendreth in it. It had um, Maldraxxus in it. And it had the Maw in it. I think it was like just, there was one realm ruled by Zoval. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he did something so awful that they rebelled against him and threw him down. And in the process, the Maw was sundered away and, create, and turned into a prison to hold him. The fact that Maldraxxus seems to be like a literal living thing or undead thing kind of makes me wonder about that too. Like if, if the realms were like were actually, they, they seem to take on the form that they require to be suitable for their purpose. Uh, if that was always the case, or if like Zoval did that across the entirety of the Shadowlands, and but we knew, we hear that when the uh, Winter Cream Queen first came to awareness, she arrived in in uh, Ardenweald. Ardenweald, and you know the place took on the form it did because of her. Was that the case when they were all connected, or you know were they all connected? I mean, I'm, I say I think that, but that doesn't mean it's true. Um, there's a lot to this, you know. I still want to know how is Elune her sister. Yeah. What does that mean? If Elune is from, say, if the Emerald Dream turns out to be the exact opposite of the Shadowlands and Elune is from there, what is she? Is she like a first one? Is she, uh, you know, is she a similar being to the Winter Queen, like just created in a different way? Or what's going on with that? They obviously think of themselves as sisters. They speak to each other as equals. Um, the Winter Queen is actually resentful. Yeah. At first, until Loon's like, I, I heard you. I tried to send you my people. What, what, you know, what more do you want? And you know, the Winter Queen's like, they didn't get here. They all went to the mall. And she's like, dang, that's not good. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to this that I want to know more about. Uh, I do think that it would be interesting if they get to choose, or if it's just the case that being they might have been Night Warriors who went to Bastion, but since they forgot everything, we don't know that they went to Bastion. Like, what would the point be of trying to recruit them to help in this when they wouldn't remember anything? You know what I mean? Like, so they might have gone there and then just, you know, lost their memories. You know, so we don't, there's no point to trying to get them. That's that's one possibility. It might not be that they chose not to go to Bastion. They might have chosen to go to Bastion and then, you know, some yep. of them might have wanted to forget. It's true. You know, if you if you lived a life where you your life was so bad that you felt the need to allow your god to bodily inhabit you knowing it's going to kill you. Like, you know... Taranda might have chosen to forget if given the opportunity, you know, she, she chose something else apparently. But if, if that's the, if they're given the option to choose, some of them might've chosen. Yeah. Wipe my mind. I don't want to remember any of this. You know, that, and that's fair. That is absolutely yeah. fair. But you know, we don't know. Uh, this is all, it's fun to speculate. I do think it would be interesting. I do want to know more about the Elune winter queen relationship. I want to know very much. So yeah. Like if, if we've got the, 
the Winter Queen and Ardenweald, and that's kind of like the their version of the Unseelie. Uh, what's the Seelie like? Where what are they? Where are mm-hmm. they? Is there a realm? Is there a realm in the Emerald Dream where it's like the opposite of Ardenweald, where it's permanent summer? Like what's what's up with that? Why and why is Elune there? Elune is the moon, you know, not the sun. Yeah, is but the moon a, is, is often often associated no, no. with like fertility oh, and stuff like no, that. No, too, no, no, right? no. Hold on, no, I'm not done. Sorry. We we know that the Torin believe that Elune is one of two. That there's Aparo, the sun, who is Elune's like you know exact opposite, yet also like effectively her mate. And and I I I don't know. I'm just saying there could be all sorts of stuff going on here that we have yet to even hear about. And I'm I'm very fascinated in this. We we do know that. Alun, you know, you can use the tier of Alun to activate a Naru core, mm-hmm. and we still don't know why. When we're we're told that it's supposed to be a Naru of the same line as that Naru, did Alun make the Naru? You know, there's just there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot we don't understand. So, yeah, I am still looking forward to it. But in terms of, you know. Uh, I kind of got off track a little bit, and I'm trying to like bring it back. I'm trying to figure out how to like you know <laughs> put it back. But I, I think basically we have to admit that we don't know yet what the deal is here. I do think that it's definitely the case that the Night Warriors don't seem to be forced to go to Ardenweald or allowed to go to Ardenweald so much as they there's they seem to go to wherever anybody else goes. Whether they do that through sorting, whether like the Arbiter just weighs them and says, "Oh yeah, you should go here." Or if they just get to pick, we don't know that yet. Yeah, and I think there's some some open endedness specifically in there that we have yet to to get answers for, and I'm actually looking forward to it because I want to know more about, like you said, the relationship between Alun and the Winter Queen. Uh, and I know we've gotten questions about that, so like we'll get to that at some point, folks, when we when we can talk a little bit more about it. Um, but there is there is definitely a lot more questions there. It starts to throw into sort of question everything we think we know. And that's sort of a theme with this expansion, which I appreciate uh, to a certain degree. Uh, it's it's you think you know how things are going, but this is different than what you even expected. Like we expected the Shadowlands to be a realm of death. We didn't expect it to be as ordered as it was. We didn't expect to have a cycle for some of the stuff where gods could be reborn back into our world. Why is that the case? Why is that only the case in Ardenweld? Why isn't that anywhere else? Um, why was that specifically set up? Is there a reason for it? why is Alun and the Winter Queen on that familiar level? Why do they talk to each other as equals? Is Alun still uh, inside of Tarand, or is that tear that was was formed at the end of that cinematic? Is that the representation of her letting go of her her quest for vengeance? And, you know, picking that power that would eat her alive and condensing it down to a brand new tier of a loon, which was corrupted and then destroyed before previously, uh, you know, with Ysera, that whole thing. Like, there, there's a ton of questions. Or not destroyed, sorry. Yes, that is correct. Although I do think, I don't think that a loon was ever inside Taronda. I think she was speaking through her. Sure. I don't think she was actually in there. But I think it's the very, it was the even the attempt at trying to channel that much of a loon is what burns them out. It's just too much. Yeah. Giant cosmic power, itty bitty tiny space. Yeah. That, that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, we could go on about this and we do have other questions that we didn't get through today. Um, but I'm going to end today with a, a final thought sort of, because we're kind of coming up on time. 
what do you want the next chapters to begin to address? Um, the story that we've gotten so far has been pretty, I, I mean, it's been driving towards the whole Zolval thing and everything else. Um, and now we've just done the Bastion thing. We've just done Uther. We've just done the Night Warrior stuff. What else do you feel should be addressed or, or would you like to see addressed in the upcoming chapters? Trust. <laughs> I was waiting for it. I knew it. Trust. Trust. They're not of rust. They're a bunch of guys that have done some stuff. Come on. <laughs> Sorry. No, I, I would agree with you. Like, I, I feel that there's been a very distinct lack of, of uh, trust accountability after the Ardenwell stuff. I want to know more about it. I also really want to know why Zoval has a very drusty appearance with all that stuff taken into him. Uh, because that is open. He's totally point. trusty. <laughs> He's not quite trusty. Oh goodness, I'm I'm totally clipping that. Uh, but yeah, I would like to see more about the dress as well. Is there anything else that you think you'd want to know more about? I I also want to see brokers. Like we got Tazavesh and Tazavesh. No, I I don't actually want to see any more about the brokers. I don't care. Really? Guys, they've not. I don't know what it is about the brokers, but they don't do anything for me. Really? Do you, I mean, this is going to sound like a weird question, but do you, you don't feel that same way about ethereals, do you? Yeah, I do. I don't care about the ethereals. Uh, well, that would make sense then. Although I care more about like the lore of the ethereals. Like, I, I'm interested. I want to go to their home world. I want to see what happened to it. But I think it's the fact that they're, they're, they're these, these groups are all portrayed as like these innately super mercantilistic groups that just doesn't do it for me. That being said, I could be completely changed around on the brokers, depending on what revelations come out about them. Like if we find out that this whole mercantilist thing is just a cover and they're really up to this, then I would be interested, depending on what it, this is. Um, the fact that they're kind of like trading in souls and soul bits, that that's the only thing that I find interesting about them. They're effectively like, you know, they're like people who discover like a, like this magical font of existence that creates all life in the cosmos. And they're like, this should be bought and sold. That's interesting because it's a really horrific, awful response to that. So, yeah, that I'm interested in. But the brokers themselves, I would not be surprised to find out they were like, you know, magical robots made in one of the like places like, uh, oh, bloody heck, uh, Corthia. Like it's a celestial forge, to, almost kind of yeah, spit them it out. Yeah, surprised me to find out that they were like magic robots made in Corthia who got loose when their creators were destroyed or something. This wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I think that for me, the the one thing I want to know about brokers is how they're able to travel between uh, Shadowlands and reality, so or, or our world essentially, so easily in between realms in a way that they that nothing else seems to be able to do. Like it took the Helm of Domination, a ritual. Uh, and shattering that helmet domination to weaken the walls to the point where we could travel to the Shadowlands. And even then, like, other forays into there were so weak uh, or limited, as in the stuff with the Death Knight starting zone. Um, why are they so special? What allows them to do that? And I want to know kind of more about that, because I think there's some interesting implications inside of that. But I think that's going to do it for us today, folks. Uh, Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. 
Your continued support means this podcast lighting community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. Again, if you have questions for this or the other shows, be sure to send them into podcast at blizzardwatch.com or one of our various Discord channels. Just please make sure you specify what podcast they are for. Otherwise, Matt and I will have to thumb wrestle and it'll... My thumbs hurt. Matt's got more reach than me. It's just, it, I can't compete. It's just how it is. Freakishly long thumbs. Some have said my thumbs themselves are harbinger of the end times. They just that was stick me. Way I said now. that. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to, like, you know, throw that too much out there. But yeah, it's true. He does. He's constantly just, you know, randomly calling me at odd moments, like, you know, oh, hey, it's a Discord call. What's up? Your thumbs are the harbinger of the apocalypse. Click. Oh, yeah, it's a good time. <laughs> Now this is going to happen more frequently. Uh, but thank you very much, folks. We appreciate everything that you uh, you do for us. We do receive those messages. Uh, and the last thing I will say is we've gotten a lot of tweets, uh, emails, Discord messages, uh, thanking us for coverage and content over the last several weeks. Um, we're glad to use our platform to do that and to echo those messages and have good constructive conversations around that. Um, so thank you very much for your continued support. Thank you for your kind words. We'll see you next week. 